it's so interesting. We really do hate feelings. And I said that once in a therapy session, you know, like I can't stand feelings. And you know what my therapist said? How do you feel about joy? And I was like, oh, that's right. I am judging feelings and I can't stand the ones that make me feel uncomfortable. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Startup Parent Podcast. This is the show where we get to talk to working parents, entrepreneurs, and business leaders about what it looks like to raise kids while also building companies. If you're in the thick of it with your career or your business and you've got little ones at home, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. My guest today is Marissa Renee Lee, and we are having a conversation about her book, Grief is Love, Living with Loss. Marissa is an advocate, a writer, and a speaker all about coping with grief. In 2008, she lost her mother to breast cancer. And in 2019, Marissa and her husband lost a much-wanted pregnancy. And more recently, she lost a young cousin to the COVID-19 pandemic. These losses transformed her life and led her to question what grief really is and what healing truly requires. Marissa is a leading grief advocate. And she offers incisive and compassionate advice on managing life after loss. Today, we talk about why it's so hard to let ourselves feel the worst of the feelings and why every therapist everywhere tells you, oh, you got to feel the feelings, to which we both respond, but why? We don't want to feel those feelings. They are uncomfortable and not pleasant, but they matter. They're important. And we're going to dig into those sticky feelings because they are so related to joy and compassion and love. We also talk about self-care and why we need others to support us, as well as what true friendship looks like, what it means to allow ourselves to be inconvenienced by other people and why that matters. She shares a beautiful story about who showed up for her during the worst of times. One of the things I appreciate most about this book is I'm going to read from the back cover from the publisher's notes. It's this idea that healing does not mean moving on after losing a loved one. Healing means learning to acknowledge and create space for your grief. It is about learning to love the one you lost with the same depth, passion, joy, and commitment that you did when they were alive, perhaps even more. She guides you through the pain of grief, whether you've lost a person recently or a long time ago, and shows you what it looks like to honor your loss on your unique terms. And she debunks the idea of grief stages or timelines. This is a conversation about beauty and joy as much as it is about loss and grief. Marissa is a former appointee in the Obama White House. She previously served as the Deputy Director of Private Sector Engagement as a senior advisor on the Domestic Policy Council and as the managing director of the MBK Alliance, the nonprofit that was born out of President Obama's call to action to address the barriers to success the boys and young men of color disproportionately face in their lives. She's a graduate from Harvard College, and she lives with her husband, Matt, her son, Bennett, and her dog, Sadie. We'll be right back. If you want to be able to talk to parenting experts and get the support that you really need, then you have to check out Oath Care. Oath Care is an app that gives you your own personalized care team to ask any and all questions seven days a week for your pregnancy, postpartum, and pediatric journey. What I love about Oath Care is their mission to change healthcare support for families by starting with a community-first model. When we are isolated, our mental and physical health declines. When you join Oath Care, you get direct access to nurses, doctors, and specialists 
and also other parents. Oath also hosts weekly virtual community calls, and they deliver up-to-date research and data from the experts, so you can always stay well-informed and not worry about where you're getting your information from. Plus, they match every parent that joins with fellow parents in a similar stage, so you're in a safe and trusted community. Also, the OathCare app is totally free right now. Go download the OathCare app. The OathCare app is available on Google Play and the Apple App Store. That's OathCare.com. I will put the link in the show notes. Okay, we're back. Today, I get to have Marissa Renee Lee join us. Marissa, hi. Thanks for joining. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I want to start just by saying thank you for writing your book, Grief is Love. It's an amazing book. People listening, it shines a light on all these different facets of grief. I think that we don't explore very much in society. There's a lot of boxing up grief and putting it in a little corner and I think it to be tidy and I think a whole fear of feelings, right? <laughs> we yes. run with yes. feelings and you really unpack so many beautiful things in your book. So just thank you, first of all, for writing it. Oh, thank you. I'm glad it resonated with you. And yeah, it's so interesting. We really do hate feelings. And I said that once in a therapy session, you know, like I can't stand feelings. And you know what my therapist said? How do you feel about joy? And I was like, oh, that's right. I am judging feelings and I can't stand the ones that make me feel uncomfortable. So I tried to unpack that a bit in the book. Can you talk more about that? I mean, that when you wrote things about feelings and emotions and how much we run from them and avoid them, I'm going to pull up a quote, but the language you used felt like you were writing something I would have said to my therapist and also <laughs> to my friend. Like I engage so much in being busy and avoiding and striving and achieving and all of that to avoid sitting and being with a feeling is so excruciating sometimes. Oh, it is deeply painful. It is uncomfortable. And I think for people like us who are used to putting effort into something in order to obtain a specific outcome. It's really hard to just sit still and be with an emotion, which is really the only way to move through it. You know, every therapist I've ever seen, and also Dr. Dorothy Hollinger, who I mentioned in the book, who wrote this other wonderful book called The Anatomy of Grief, they all say naming feelings is what reduces their power over us. So when you sit and you name these things and you acknowledge them, that's how you move through them more quickly and with greater ease. But nobody wants to do that. You know, if you broke your leg, you would know, like, you know, I have to go to the doctors, I have to get x-rays, I have to have a cast, I have to use crutches, et cetera. And you would do those things because you know that those are the things that you need to do in order to heal. But nobody really explains to us what are the things we need to do to heal from emotional pain and trauma and grief. And so I think the more we can all normalize challenging emotions as just a part of a normal human experience, the easier it will be for all of us to heal. I love that analogy so much because also if you break your leg, 
People expect it to take eight to 10 weeks yep. before you're walking again. They're going to understand. Yep. Do you want me to help up the stairs? Do you want me to hold the elevator for you? How's your leg doing? Have you started running again? They'll be with you for at least three to yep. six months on the journey, and they're not going to judge you for your leg not healing faster. Exactly. Whereas okay. with emotional stuff, you know, everyone thinks they have a better way to do it or some sort of expertise. And we don't. And this was a big part of why I wanted to make sure everything in grief is love wasn't just Marissa's story, but was also supported by the leading research and data on grief and loss. Because, you know, when we can better understand what we need to do, it makes it easier to do it. So I, this quote you have in your book is the one that stood out to me. The idea of sitting, being present, simply breathing through heavy and challenging emotions seems counterintuitive and frankly annoying. Yeah, doesn't it? Like, why would you want to do that? I'm going to read the rest of it. Physical pain is in some ways easier to manage. I mean, who the hell wants to sit with sadness, with the anguish that comes after life-changing loss? Who wants to give space to feelings of emptiness and despair? Not me. I mean, don't. I just want to have fun and be joyful and happy all the time. But like, that's not normal. And it's so interesting because something that has reminded me of like the duality in life and, you know, the various stops on the spectrum of emotions that we all are expected to experience is becoming a mom. And seeing a baby very quickly sometimes go from being totally fine and happy and smiling and like giggling with you to suddenly losing their minds for, you know, no apparent reason at all half the time. And that's just normal. You know, like we expect babies to cry. Like we expect a lot of emotional expression from children. But for some reason, we don't expect the same from adults. It's like as you get older, the expectation is you hide the less pleasant, less positive parts of yourself. And I just think that's not helpful to anyone. So much of this. I mean, so I have a three and a half year old and a six year old now. And I sometimes get a little envious of my three and a half year old because when he gets frustrated and something doesn't work or his feelings are hurt, he scrapes his knee. He flails his body on the ground. He screams. He lets it out like the rage is there. He shouts, that's not fair. Or my knee hurts. So he just explains yeah. it. And then usually about three minutes later, he's, he's cool. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. I'm like, I yeah. need to do that more in the middle of my work day. Like, yeah, take the three minutes, let it out. <laughs> right? Get it out. Get it out. Get it out. Yes. Yeah. I feel like one of the things that we... I was going to say loss, but I don't even know if we, it's a loss. I feel like coming on the heels of the 20th century and what parenting looked like, there's so much emotional literacy that we just don't have because so much of parenting was about keeping children quiet. Children should be not seen, yeah. not heard, right? Don't cry. You're yeah. fine. You're okay. He's such a good baby. Right. Yeah. When they yeah. don't cry. You know, we have all these things where it's like, frankly, I feel like we're terrified of feelings. And then we heard these adults and yes. we don't know what to do with them. And I almost feels revolutionary working with kids now and being with them and being like, that's a big feeling. Are you yeah, high? That's okay. Like for you. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, yeah, no, 100%, 100%. I mean, we need to normalize anger and disappointment and frustration and sadness because they are all perfectly normal. Like we were wired at birth with, I can't remember, it's, it's, I mentioned it in the book, either five or six innate feelings. And among them are sadness, fear, and anger. So denying yeah. ourselves these things now just doesn't make any sense. I think that sixth one, only because my therapist just showed me a diagram. <laughs> 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 disgust. I think yeah. it always surprises me because I'm like, I don't understand that one as, but it's cross-cultural. Yes. Yes. yes, exactly. It's literally any human being born. So I think we need to stop denying ourselves those things because they are perfectly normal. Absolutely. Oh, I would like... We all know I could go down a rabbit hole about talking about big feelings. And I'm that person, too, at a dinner party where I'm like, so tell me about like what you learned about yourself. And sometimes people look at me, they're like, I'm deeply uncomfortable with this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go into asking you about your story, to share some of your story with our listeners. And can you start by telling us when you first became acquainted with grief and loss? Yeah, so actually... The very first time I remember encountering grief, I was maybe five years old and my mom's brother died in the AIDS epidemic. And I thought he was like one of the coolest people ever at that age because in my mind, this is what his life looked like. He lived with his best friend. He had a dog. And every time we went to his house, I got to have spaghetti and meatballs. And so for me, like this person who I was like, oh, my God, like that's how I want to live. Forget getting married. I'll live with my best friend. I'll have a dog and I'll eat spaghetti and meatballs all the time. Like this is a fantastic way to be. And then I remember going with my mom to visit him in the hospital. And then in our family, we were just not shielded from death. So like me and the rest of my cousins spent the morning with a babysitter. And then at some point we were taken to the funeral. And I remember walking into this big historic black church in our community that I'd been to a bunch of times before as a kid and being led down the center aisle to like where his casket was so that we could pay our respects to our uncle. I don't know whose idea that was, that that was, you know, the way we were going to do it. But I will just never forget that moment of being like, you know, like, first of all, why is everybody looking at us? Why is everybody crying? Like, I know he died, but I don't really understand what it means to die. And they even told us that he died from AIDS, which was a whole other thing that I didn't understand. You know, it was a lot and it was overwhelming and confusing. But I think in some ways that began like my family's process to the best extent possible of normalizing grief. And, you know, from there, unfortunately, there were a number of other losses that I experienced in early childhood and adolescence. A friend's father was murdered. Another friend's father died from cancer. And like my parents are the kind of people who like you show up when the worst thing happens to someone you care about. You know, the day my friend's dad got shot, I was pulled out of school because principal knew that this was my best friend's father. And when I got home, you know, my mom said, you have to call your friend. And I was like, what am I going to say to Jillian? Like, are you kidding me? Like her dad went to work and then didn't come home. 
And she's like, you'll figure it out. Tell her you're sorry. And she was already dialing. And like, that was it. It was like baptism by fire in my family for sure. But then, you know, the worst of it came when my mom, who first got sick when I was 13 with multiple sclerosis, was having a really, really bad year in 2005. And no one could figure out what was wrong until finally she went and saw a doctor who was a family friend and he found lesions on her bones. And so I left college the week I was supposed to be graduating, went home to be with my mom and dad. And, you know, I'll never forget being in this examination room at an oncologist's office and the oncologist started touching her breasts. And like instantly I was like, oh, that's a problem. She has something wrong with her bones, but if she also has something in her breasts, like that means we're in trouble. And he took her hand and placed it on her left breast and said, can you feel that? And it turned out she had an eight centimeter mass and she had stage four breast cancer. And like that, can you feel that? When she said yes, I was like, oh, my mom is like dying. Like this is it. I didn't call it grief. I didn't know it was a form of grief. And I honestly felt embarrassed for feeling so emotional about like a future death. And so I did the thing that type A ambitious people do. I took charge that day. Like I was like, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to see anybody. You know, family were coming by the house, like checking out. So I was like, no, this is too many feelings. And got in the car and went to Barnes and Noble because back then Google wasn't what it is now. And so I went to Barnes and Noble and I bought all of these books about like breast cancer care, breast cancer research, you know, the best new medications, the best diet, like all of the things. And I started getting myself organized. You know, I created a color-coded binder with all of my research notes and all of our plans and doctor's information and medication information. I got her a second opinion at, you know, Sloan Kettering, the best cancer hospital in the country. Like I got to work and then I went back to school and I graduated and then I got back to work and lived with my mom and dad for a year, just trying to help them manage it all. And it was awful, but I felt like I was doing the things that I thought were both best for supporting my mom and dad and best for preparing myself for when she was going to die. And then she died two and a half years later. And all of that preparation was mostly worthless. Like I was a mess. It was terrible. Oh, I was just thinking about all of the different pieces and what it must have been like for you. You write in the book and you just mentioned now about the period before. Death isn't the only time to grieve. I have this quote from you. The period before death can be filled with anguish and all sorts of complicated feelings. And the only thing that makes grief, whether before or after death, even a tiny bit easier is giving yourself permission to grieve on your own terms. I'm curious it sounds like you went to work. You got busy. Yeah. And I would guess, and tell me if this is accurate, you didn't actually have a lot of space for your feelings. I didn't want to deal with them. Yeah. It was both I didn't have the space and I wasn't interested in creating the space. So after the year at home, I was working full time on Wall Street at the height of the financial crisis. I also decided, wait for it, to start a charity on the side because, you know, I know I couldn't save my mom, but what could I do? I could throw parties for young people to get them involved in this cause and raise a bunch of money. Like I knew I could do that. I, I'm really good at that stuff. So like I did that. And then, you know, I was in my early 20s in New York. So I was 
going out two or three nights a week and going on dates with all sorts of Wall Street bros and, you know, trying to still have, you know, normal-ish 20-something existence. And so in all of that, there wasn't a lot of room to feel. But what that meant was, you know, I would have these crazy days at my desk on banking platform all day, usually meeting someone for drinks or going out to dinner or whatever, doing work on the charity on the side. When I would get into bed is when I would suffer because that's when I would be forced to acknowledge, even if not out loud, like I knew deep down inside that every day that ended meant that I was one day closer to losing my mom. And I knew it was going to be awful. And so I like didn't sleep, you know, during that period, even medicated, I would sleep like four hours a night, maybe. And that's how I functioned or really didn't function, but sort of functioned. So yeah, I didn't create space for feelings and I tried my best to ignore them. You write about how much you love like present tense, your mom. Would you share with us some of the things you love about her? Like she was your best friend. Yeah, she was amazing. And like, not just, I think it's really important, you know, we all have parents and hopefully you got good ones. My mom was a great mom, but she was also the kind of person who like the second you walked into her house, like you were one of her kids too. Like she wasn't just my mom. You know, I did a bookstore event in my hometown where one of my childhood friends interviewed me. She's a journalist now. And she shared this story about her and my mom that I'd never even heard before about like how she ran away to my house and how my mom counseled her and like supported her. Like, it's crazy. Like my mom knew everybody's business. She knew the things that you might not even tell your other friend from school. Like people would come to my house and talk to my mom about them. That's just who she was. So I think that generosity of spirit and desire to comfort and console and just support other people. Like those are some of the things she was also just very hospitable. You know, that's the other thing. Like if you showed up at our house, like you were going to get fed. Like it doesn't matter how sick she was, like you were going to either get a snack or she was going to talk you through how to make something or you were going to be getting leftovers in the fridge, you know, whatever. Like if you were at our house, you were going to eat and you were going to hang out and like have a good time. And my mom was going to like take care of you. Or she was obsessed with food. That was a big part of our life together and still a big part of my life now. She also loved children. And she used to say that if she hadn't gotten sick, because the thing that's crazy to me now, excuse me, as a 39-year-old, I was 13 when my mom got sick. She was 37. Like, can you imagine? Can you imagine? You know what I mean? Like that, like the fact that she continued to be this very active and engaged parent while I'm sure grieving lots of things, you know, loss of health, loss of identity, loss of work, because, you know, she could no longer work after she gets sick, like all of this stuff. I mean, it's kind of crazy when I look back on it. Yeah, it's astonishing. And also just to be the same age as your mom, what was 37 like for you? So 37 was a big birthday for me because, you know, in my mind, mom gets sick at 37, mom gets diagnosed with breast cancer at 45, mom dies at 49. So like, I definitely have spent a lot of time going through the 
what if that happens to you? Like something similar happens to me. Like, what if I get sick at a young age? Like, you know, just like going through all of that. And so it was a big birthday and definitely a challenging birthday. And then for me, 37 came with the pandemic. That's two years. They turned 37. (laughs) Oh, goodness. So, yeah, it was intense. It was really intense. I mean, that was I celebrated my 37th birthday with a bunch of girlfriends. And that became the last time that I saw a lot of them because it was January birthday. It was definitely really emotional. Like there were a lot of tears leading up and tears on the other side. And then for me, you know, making it to 38, making it to 39 with good health is like a miracle. I'm very similar. I'm 38. So I'm really, these milestones. The chapter in the book about care really stood out to me in so many ways because my work is with women and women in leadership and there's so much patriarchal conditioning. There's so much, you have to be selfless. You have to be, you are in service of other people and being selfless and in service of other people is not inherently bad, but when we destroy ourselves in the process or we don't have space for self care, it's not great. And the way you write about care is so beautiful and like it was hard for me to read because I know yeah. it's true. And I also know I'm not there yet. And, yeah. and I know how many of us struggle with it. And yet it's so profoundly one of the most important things I think we can do. And also one of the hardest things that I think for women and not just women, for people across all of the different stratospheres and caste systems yes. of our society. So it's even harder for black women. It's even harder for Jewish people. It's even harder for people of color. Yep. LGBTQ people, et cetera. No, 100%. We're going to take a quick break. Oathcare envisions a new model of healthcare rooted in community because we know that community is so important for health and well being. Oathcare provides complete support for parents throughout the pregnancy, postpartum, and pediatric journey. If you're looking for a safe and trusted community with expert guidance, sign up for the Oathcare app. It is free to use and it's available on the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store. Go to oathcare.com to download the app. All right, let's get back into it. The care piece, just to be clear, is something that I still struggle with. And for me, practically, the only way that it gets done is by putting it on my to-do list with all of the other things that I'm doing to promote the book or for clients or for other people in my family. So it goes on my to-do list and... I try really hard to hold myself accountable. And I think self-care has been commodified just like so many other things in this country and in our capitalist white supremacist society. And I wanted to tell a different story about care. And I realized, you know, the best example for me was the decision to stop trying to get pregnant. You know, like it was not something that I wanted to do to care for myself, but I knew ultimately it was the most important thing for me to do to really get my mental, emotional, and physical health back on track. It was hard. When we hear self-care, we think about massages and pedicures and things of that nature. And I'm all for those things. 
to be clear. Um, but I think it is really about being intentional and honest about what you need to be okay in the world, especially when really hard things happen. You know, like I think about all the ways that, you know, I hope we've learned to more intentionally care for ourselves throughout the pandemic. You know, suddenly you couldn't do the typical self-care things that exist outside of your home. And so you had to find new ways to be intentional about caring for and supporting yourself. And I hope some of that really does continue because it's not about these pricey indulgences. Not that we can't enjoy them and not that they shouldn't be a part of the equation because they certainly are for me. But I really do think that it's something deeper and more intentional than that. Absolutely. I mean, expensive luxuries are not the base layer. Exactly. Exactly. I'm all for throwing them in there somewhere. Like I love the massages. I'm looking at my Peloton bike. I love that too. But it's like going deeper for me means answering the question of like, why do these things even help me? And is this the thing that is going to help me the most today? And if yes, why is that? You know, is it because I am looking for some nurturing, like the way that my mom used to provide? So like, that's why I go get a massage. So I think, again, it's thoughtfulness and intentionality. And so much of it, too, is about understanding the deeper layers of yourself. So what is yes. it that is not getting care? You know, are there exactly. boundaries being crossed? Is there like a toxic workplace environment? Sometimes self-care yes. actually standing up for yourself and advocating yes. for what you need. I really appreciated how you wrote about self-care. Like self-care requires you to treat yourself the way you would a best friend or a sibling yes. or a spouse. It's so much easier to be nice to other people, to be loving to other people. Like, you know, for years, I have been framing self-care through the lens of, well, what would my mom tell me to do? You know what I mean? Like, and I'm trying, as lovely as that is, I also am trying to get away from that a little bit and like really stand on my own and say, you know, like, okay, Marissa, what do you need? Like, what is going to make this completely insane week easier and put you in a place where you can both you know, get your work done and be present enough to enjoy time with yourself, time with, you know, Matt, time with Bennett, et cetera. But it's hard. Like, it's something I have to work on every day. I, same. Those smaller things, too, of just knowing who you are and what you need, I find it to be exquisitely hard, especially when it asks you to be compassionate towards yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That one's, I think... There are so many people out there who <laughs> will be nodding along. Yeah. Yep, that one's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. It's wrapped up in a letting go. It's wrapped up in like deeper knowing. Just on the self-compassion piece, that is something that I absolutely struggle with. And every year for the last few years, me and some of my girlfriends have like picked a word or a phrase for the year. And for me, 2021 was about self-compassion. And there's this word in Sanskrit, Maitri, I think I'm saying it right, that gets at like the core of self-compassion and the connection between self-compassion and self-love and surrender. You know, like all of these things are connected. They're all hard, especially if you are like type A, hard charging, like I can control everything type person. And that is who I am. So daily struggle. 
so hard because it requires us to believe that we have worth and value and fullness without doing anything. So at least for me, yeah. Working value without having to work or trade something for them. Yeah, you are inherently worthy. Like I think that is something that we struggle to teach and that like, I don't know about you, but like I wasn't taught that as a kid. And I want to make sure that that is something that I teach my child. Like just the fact of your existence makes you worthy. Like that is enough. My husband said something to my kid the other day. It like broke my heart in like a good way. But the kid was having a really grumpy day and he was headed to daycare, his little nursery school. And he's like, I don't want to go. And Alex, my partner said, you know, whether you have a good day or a bad day, you're feeling great, you're feeling bad. We will be here for you no matter what. And I was like, oh, I need someone to say that to me every day. (laughs) You were like, what about me, Alex? (laughs) (laughs) Totally. But he does actually say things like that to me, too. He's like, you know, if you're having a grumpy day, I still love you. And I'm like, oh, yeah. But Paying that to ourselves is the hardest part. It's like, hey, Sarah, you know, you're totally miserable and you're lying in bed and you feel like poo and nothing's going well. And the Internet's. Yeah. Oh, my God. And the Internet, we all have to be careful right now. I feel like between social media consumption and actual media consumption, there is just so much grief and sadness and darkness. And I think I just want to say, I think it's important for people to take breaks from consuming media and social media if you want to protect your sanity right now. Yes, I have to take it off my phone a couple of days a week. Otherwise, I just get annoyed um, by it. I set app limits, you know, like on the iPhone. Yeah, so that I can only be across all social media platforms. I think I get 40 minutes a day. The one problem is because I've been doing more IG lives, like, I've you get cut off in the middle? Off. Yes, yes. <laughs> so like I have to remember to like turn it on, turn it off. But yeah, it's just not like... That happened to me once too. <laughs> I like cut off in the middle of the... That's what you get for being so responsible. <laughs> okay, but you dropped something in the middle of that, which a little bit ago you talked about you were going to stop trying to get pregnant. And so I want to ask you about your motherhood journey. I want to ask you... Painful. <laughs> yeah, no, I up. <laughs> Did you always want to become a parent? And tell us about the journey, what it's been like yeah. for you. I had great parents and I've always loved kids. I started working with kids. You'll appreciate this. When I was in fifth grade, me and my best friend at the time started a babysitting business modeled after the Babysitter's Club series. Yes. <laughs> with like the flyers and, you know, our dads driving us around to like get new business and stuff. It was very successful. So I worked with kids from the time I was like 11 until I graduated from college and I always loved it. And it was something that was always a priority for me. Having a family, I ideally wanted like four kids. Like that's what I thought when I was younger. And then when I moved to D.C. to work in the Obama administration, maybe like a few months into a few months into my job, I started having all of this like weird stuff happening health-wise. Like I suddenly wasn't sleeping well. I was feeling really anxious. Sometimes I would just wake up and feel really sad. I was getting these headaches, like all of these things that I couldn't understand. And initially I was like, oh, this is probably grief. I was like, but I don't really think that's right. So then I started to worry that maybe I was having like a true mental health crisis. My sister has bipolar disorder. 
you know, I thought like, oh, like maybe something is wrong with me and I need to get this checked out. So I started seeing a therapist and after a few sessions, he said, I don't think this is a like psychological or emotional challenge. Like I want you to get your health checked out. And at that point, between my mom dying, moving to a new city, starting a new job, I hadn't had a physical or gone to gynecologist or, you know, done any of that maintenance stuff in like two years. So I went in and a couple of days later, the doctor had left a few messages for me, but I was too busy working to return his calls. Eventually I went back in and came to find out that I have this very rare condition called primary ovarian failure that affects less than 1% of women. That's how lucky I am, where basically at some point my ovaries just shut down. And because we don't pay enough attention to women's health in this country, for instance, it wasn't until 1993 that women were required to be included in federally funded research studies. There are only like a few things that explain my condition, but for most people, the cause is unknown. And that was the category that I fell into. Oh, it gets worse. Upon further research when writing this book, I learned from a couple of doctors that it was probably caused by the trauma that I experienced around my mother's death. Ironically, I was losing my ability to become a mother as I was caring for my dead mother. And so I went into my relationship with my now husband, knowing that I am not fertile and that we would never be able to have a baby, you know, on our own the old fashioned way, so to speak. And so we decided when we got married, we would spend the first year researching our options and making a decision. So by August of 2016, we had decided we were going to pursue egg donor IVF and got right to it. Everything about it went wrong and was like hard from the beginning. First, it's very challenging to find black donor eggs. So like we made it through that challenge. And then, you know, we had our eggs and one by one, they all like didn't make, you know, none of our embryos made it the first try. And then it was like, okay, like we'll grieve this, give ourselves some time and then we'll start again. So start again. And while we're starting again, I ended up with this very bizarre series of infections that I had to get over before like we could do any implantation. And so then like we get through the next batch of eggs and embryo fertilization and everything. And all told out of 15 or 16 eggs, we only had one surviving healthy embryo. And so we were like, okay, this is our shot. Like it has to work out. And then the whole process of getting my body ready to receive that embryo, like everything went wrong. And my body was not responding properly to anything. You know, it was a mess. Like I was sick from the time we started in June of 2019 until technically like two years later. So we do it. We're briefly pregnant. And then we get a call from our doctor that we're no longer pregnant. Super, super, super early pregnancy loss. Like I was pregnant for two weeks, basically. And I was so convinced that this last shot of ours was going to work out that I didn't believe it. My husband immediately let himself grieve. I got in the car and drove to Walgreens and bought my own pregnancy tests because I was convinced and I can remember standing in line at Walgreens and feeling both like extreme anxiety, like why is the guy in front of me taking so long to check out? And also a sense of sadness for this other woman whose blood test results had been mixed up with mine. Like that's what I actually believed had happened. Yeah. Came home, 
took the tests, they were negative, obviously. And I was distraught. You know, I basically like took a Valium and went to sleep because I was like, I can't even deal with this. Like it was, it was too much, the shock of it. And then spent months after that trying to figure out if I could get pregnant and, you know, what options might be available and just like better understanding the underlying health situation. And it was just one disappointment after another. And, you know, trying to grieve this loss while also trying to figure out if I could get pregnant meant that I didn't have as much time for the grief as Matt did. He was not dealing with any of the physical consequences of the pregnancy loss. And he had already made up his mind that we were going to pursue adoption. Whereas I was like still kind of stuck and it was hard on both of us individually, personally, it was definitely super hard on our relationship, like figuring out how to grieve the same thing together separately. You know, like it was really, really challenging. And then at the same time, I was also really feeling the loss of my mom. You know, like there was somebody who I wanted around to help comfort and console me and she wasn't there. Oh, and then pregnancy loss happens end of 2019 and then 2020 pandemic. So I found myself suddenly dealing with all of this grief at home alone while the world grieved. And I ultimately came around to, there's no way that I am going to try anything like this again in April of 2020 when I had this dream that I had my baby. And April would have been when that baby would have been born. And it was like so realistic that I woke up like looking for this child. Yeah, like it was very realistic. I wrote about it for Refinery29 because it was like so traumatizing. But for me, that like really put a period on that whole story. And at that point, we decided we were going to pursue adoption. And so, you know, started talking to friends who adopted and began like kind of the official paperwork process and steps by August of 2020. So a year after our pregnancy loss. And we didn't move very quickly through the process between the book that I was writing and me working and Matt was working on COVID this whole time. So we didn't finish our stuff until like July of 2021. And at that point, we figured it would be six months or so before we would have a child and, you know, match with a birth mom. And a couple of weeks later, three weeks before I was supposed to be finishing my book, we got a call and there was a baby who had been born the day before and the birth mom had selected us if we wanted to be his parents. And we said yes. And in 24 hours, we became the parents to a newborn baby. Wow. It was Crazy. <laughs> so many, so many questions. So many. Thank you for telling all of that. Thank you Absolutely. for sharing it all with us. I'm curious about how was it to grieve alongside a partner? Because I think that sometimes is one of the most challenging things because you're going through different yeah, things. I don't recommend it. 
<laughs> just, zero out of ten yeah, just don't do it just don't do it yeah, don't, don't let do anybody it. die who you both love or like anybody any like loss has happened and you'll be fine it's totally cool okay, great we can't have the same friends okay done you have yours it'll be fine <laughs> it was really really hard and throughout it i was incredibly grateful for a spouse who like is really good at expressing his feelings. And I was also grateful that we had just like a really strong and solid relationship foundation. And Matt is often a better communicator than I am when it comes to emotional things. So like baseline thank God, you know, we were starting out from a very strong place. I was also grateful that we both had our own therapists and that we both had our own friends who were incredibly supportive because fundamentally like grief has the potential. And there were definitely moments where I was like, oh, I understand how sharing a loss can cause a relationship to break because you are both at capacity trying to deal with the grief. So there isn't a lot of support that you can provide practically or emotionally to one another. And, you know, we know that there are things about grief and how it shows up for all of us in our bodies, in our brains, et cetera, based on the research, right? But at the end of the day, it is a different experience for everyone. And in my case, you know, my grief was layered with, you know, the frustration and the shame and the failure that so often comes with infertility and pregnancy loss for women. It was layered with the, the plans that I was trying to hold tightly to around when we were going to become parents, how we were going to become parents. It was layered by the loss of my mom and like, you know, knowing that so much of my desire to become a parent is tied to this relationship that I had with her. And then it was also layered by the fact that I was still very physically ill. Like it took a really long time, literally almost two years to get my health fully back on track. And so like I had all of those things and Matt had other pieces to like his grief that he was managing. And, you know, there were definitely points when we would get frustrated with each other. And I remember this one conversation, it was Christmas time. So, you know, months have gone by at this point. And I said to him, I think that you are feeling frustrated with me because I'm still so upset about this and you're like ready to move on to the next steps and like talking about adoption, whatever. And I said, and I sometimes feel frustrated with you because you are or seem to be like so okay with it. And like, I'm just not there yet. And he's someone who thankfully is self-aware enough where he could say, you know what, you're right. Like it is frustrating and I don't totally get it. And I said, okay, well, you know, just having that conversation, that acknowledgement and a deep shared commitment to empathy, you know, like really holding empathy for each other and also giving each other space to heal and like do the things that facilitate healing, which were different for each of us. You know, like all of that was incredibly important. And now, you know, on the other side, it's one of those things where I never want to put too much of a positive spin on the hard stuff, but having gone through that together, 
obviously made our relationship stronger. Like I can't deny that. Would I prefer to have not had the experience of, you know, infertility and pregnancy loss with my partner? Sure. But it happened. And I have to admit that we are both better off because of it. Like we had to learn some hard lessons and we had to learn a lot about who we are and how we both cope with hard things and like what it means to deal with something really, really challenging together in different ways. Yeah. There's a bravery required when you show who you really are to someone. Yeah. And accept each other. There was a period in which I made sounds I didn't know I could make. Howling and wailing. Like I didn't know that that it was just such a different sound than I was used to in crying. And there was a period of my life where my partner just helped me. Yeah. And like we didn't try to change it. We didn't try to fix it. And it's really scary and hard to show yourself that part of yourself to someone, especially when you don't know what it's like. Yeah. So I'm just thinking about what it must have been like for you to go through that together. The other thing it reminds me of is there's so many invisible losses that are just not acknowledged. You mentioned April, I think. You mentioned April or June. April. There's so many women who get pregnant And I'll say parents, right? Parents who get pregnant and then they have these dates in the future that they expect. And then those stories disappear, but you still have feelings that come up around all of these invisible losses. It's really tough. The other thing it reminds me of, there's a quote you have in this book of, it's actually about friendship. It was one about inconveniencing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That is one that I can quickly recall because it was just such a pivotal experience for me as a young person. You know, I can't remember if we were freshmen or sophomores in college. So like 18, 19 years old. And myself and my roommate were worried about one of her childhood friends who was at another school, maybe two or so hours away. And she was struggling, you know, really depressed, homesick, having a hard time. We were talking about this and we were trying to figure out, could we like get on the train, go visit her, you know, take her out to lunch or dinner and just like hopefully cheer her up and see how she's really doing. And another friend was there and this guy, he was a couple years older because he'd done some military service before college and he had a car, which, you know, we did not. And he said, well, you know, if you want to go visit her, I can drive you and you guys can like spend time with her and then we'll just drive back when you're done. And I can remember both of us like stopping our conversation, like looking at each other, like, like, what did he just say? Like, what are you talking about? And we literally asked him, like, what are you talking about? Like, why would you do that? Like, that's like, you're going to like be our chauffeur for the day. Like, that makes no sense. Like, that, there's nothing fun in that for you. And he said, if we can't inconvenience each other, like, what are we besides people who just like hang out and drink together? Like, like we're not friends if we can't inconvenience one another in that way. And like, it just, all of a sudden I was like, oh... That's what it like being someone's friend isn't just about spending time with them and hanging out. And like, and when he said it, I realized that I had these other examples of, you know, either me inconveniencing myself for someone else or someone doing that for me. And like, those were the people who I was closest to. And I was like, oh my God, like, yes, like this is what it means to really truly be someone's friend. Like, it's not about going out together on Friday nights. Like it's about showing up when it's not about fun. And when it's just about being there to support someone else. 
Yeah. I love that story because it reminds me of what you said before, too, like the connection to being able to see each other in the hardest parts. Yeah. It's kind of pivotal for relationships. It's Absolutely. almost like we think we're going to be friends without the inconvenience. But I would maybe think that it's allowing yourself to be inconvenienced is what creates actual friendships. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the funny thing that happened is after I went through the newborn period and through the sleepless nights, right? Mm-hmm. There's some uh, inconvenience in that. And then I was on call for a couple of friends who were going to the hospital who had to go to birth. They were giving birth. They had older kids. They needed someone who could yes, watch the older kids. Yeah. yeah. And you can't plan when you're going to go into labor. So they said, can we call you? And I was on, you know, their tree of people to call. And so you put them on your favorites and your phone. You let them yeah. interrupt you, right? Because they might call you at 2 a.m. Yes. And that's fine, right? Like, yeah. of course, you're going to do that for a friend. Well, it reminded me that I can do that at other times besides and so there's a couple of friends oh. where I've said, you know, they're going through really crappy things. They're going through really hard things. I'm like, you can call me when you're wailing at a left. You can wake me up. I've yeah. been woken up before by a newborn. Yeah. Like I can do broken sleep. Like you have full permission to call me and like yeah. not an inconvenience. The only thing I'm losing is a few minutes of sleep. Like you need someone. And I think that showing up for our friends like that is so powerful this story like really stuck out to me. If I never let you inconvenience me, then we aren't really friends. Exactly. So, yeah. Oh, I love that. Okay. Also, Bennett. <laughs> I can't leave without asking you about Bennett. Are the best. So one of the things, and it's important for me to share this because I'm sure just like every other uncomfortable thing I've shared, somebody else is going through it as well. Before we could really commit to adoption, like I forced us to both have hard conversations about could we truly, fully, completely love a child that we take no part in creating? Like, what does that look like? Like, basically, like, is your heart big enough for that? Because it's a really serious and significant thing. And I think it's something that is important to consider. And I remember this one conversation with my therapist when I was like, and I'm sure at this point she was like tired of me having this conversation with her. I was like, I just, what if I don't love this kid enough? I was like genuinely worried about it. And she was like, let's say theoretically that the stork leaves a baby in a basket on your doorstep. Like, what are you going to do? And I was like, oh, that kid's mine. And she was like, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it's so wild. Like after so many years of knowing that we are meant to be parents, like knowing that I am meant to be a mother and that like there is a child that belongs to me to have that child actually show up and like, instantly you know that they're yours like I don't even know and I haven't reflected on it enough to be like really articulate in describing it but even before Bennett's birth mom signed the papers I like knew that it was happening that like this was going to be ours and it was going to be great and then you walk into an adoption agency and like there's your kid for the person you know like it was amazing and he is amazing and it's really fascinating to see like nature versus nurture like up close and personal 
And there's just so much in Bennett that is like the same as me. And like, it's really bizarre to see that unfold, knowing that I didn't carry this kid. Like, it's not Matt's DNA. It's not mine. It's been amazing. Like, he's awesome. And I am super, super, super grateful. I think we have a relatively easy baby. I'm like, not on wood. I think that probably means he's going to be like a terrible nightmare of a toddler or teenager or something because he's been sleeping here at night since he was 16 weeks, 14 weeks, something like that. And like, you know, go, Bennett, go. sleep training. Yes. Like he took to sleep training in two days because he loves to sleep. Like, thank God. Yeah. yeah. And we've taken him on the road. I traveled with him solo for one of my book tour events. Like he's a pretty solid companion and he just brings us and everyone who interacts with him so much joy. Very happy baby. Oh, that is so fun. Yeah, That's it's awesome. been amazing. It's a whole new level of contentment is what I tell people. You are so smiley right now. <laughs> it's like people listening. <laughs> I mean, he's just, he's the best. And I accidentally taught him at a very young age about selfies. So like now he's like very good at turning on the charm. Like there's a million pictures of the two of us. And he's like, you know, like he like turns his head to the side a little bit and gives you a big smile. Like he knows what he's supposed to do. And oh, they're really smart. Right. Yeah. Like, yes. oh my God. And we're now at the stage where he's not yet crawling, but he's getting around. So mm-hmm. like, you know, before you could put him on the floor and he would do nothing, go nowhere. Now it's like you put him on the floor and somehow he gets to the other side of the room without properly crawling and is now doing something that's like, he's like trying to knock himself out on a dresser or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so it's been interesting. These last well, they go from that potted plant stage, which yes, does which is not awesome. last. It's yeah. an awesome stage, but like that stage is almost entirely over for us. So yeah, yeah, it only lasts a couple of months, right? And then oh. yeah, they'll scoot, and they scoot so weirdly. Like mine scooted backwards until he was under the couch, and he couldn't yes. move forwards. And then so he's just stuck under the couch. Yes, and like oh, yeah, someone come get. He scoots. I don't know if it's sideways. I don't know exactly what it is, but he hits himself. To where he's like halfway stuck under like the credenza in the living room. Yeah. And like, then he's freaking out. I'm like, well, you did this. You, know, you did this, right? <laughs> he can't go forward. He can't oh. be opposite. Yeah. Oh, it's not so hard. Now, the potted stage is amazing. And also it's so challenging because I know so many people who are like, oh, this is amazing. I can work with a baby. And they set their whole schedule up. No. I'm like, okay, it changes. Nothing is months, permanent. But- <laughs> yeah, nothing is <laughs> nothing permanent. Is Everything is written in pencil. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. By your child. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we all live by then and schedule. Totally. Oh, I love that. Okay. Is there anything else that I didn't ask you that you really want to talk about before we wrap today? I just want to say that my goal in writing this book was to help normalize grief for people so that ideally some of the shame and judgment that I experienced can be avoided by others. You know, I want folks to remember that grief isn't just about this like two week time period around when you lose someone and it's not confined to these five stages. Like grief is the repeated experience of learning to live in the midst of a significant loss. And as far as I can tell, 14 plus years out, Like it comes and goes in waves forever. So give yourself permission to grieve, you know, show yourself compassion and grace and extend the same to others because a lot of people are grieving right now. Yes. Thank you, Marissa. Yeah, absolutely. 
This is great. If you're a parent, you probably know just how challenging and frustrating the U.S. healthcare system is. It's siloed, it's transactional, it's expensive, and it's antiquated. You're rushed through all of your appointments, it'll take forever to get your child seen if they're sick, and the health of the parent, aka you, is not really considered at all when you're at the pediatrician's office. So what's a parent to do? Turn to Reddit or Google? I've been down that rabbit hole and it's not always helpful or pretty. If you want to be able to talk to parenting experts and get the support that you really need, then you have to check out Oath Care. OathCare is an app that gives you your own personalized care team to ask any and all questions seven days a week for your pregnancy, postpartum, and pediatric journey. What I love about OathCare is their mission to change healthcare support for families by starting with a community-first model. When we are isolated, our mental and physical health declines. When you join OathCare, you get direct access to nurses, doctors, sleep and lactation consultants, and even specialists in nutrition and exercise and speech and early childhood development. Oath also hosts weekly virtual community calls and they deliver up-to-date research and data from the experts so you can always stay well-informed and not worry about where you're getting your information from. Plus, they match every parent that joins with fellow parents in a similar stage so that you're in a safe and trusted community designed specifically for curiosity, vulnerability, and deep wisdom. Also, the OathCare app is totally free right now. Go download the OathCare app. The OathCare app is available on Google Play and the Apple App Store. You can download it right away by going to OathCare.com. That's OathCare.com. I will put the link in the show notes. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. It is a pleasure to be in conversation with you. You can find out more about everything we talked about and all of the show notes here on your podcast player, or you can head to our website, startupparent.com. I want to give another shout out to all of our amazing sponsors who help make this show possible. We are so grateful to get to work with you and partner with so many wonderful companies and organizations that are dedicated to making life better for entrepreneurs, female founders, and working parents. If you are interested in sponsoring the show and partnering with us, then head to startupparent.com slash sponsor, and you can send a note to our sponsorship team. Did you know that we have a new Substack and we have a secret podcast? Oh, yes, we do. Head to Startup Parents Substack. The link is startupparent.substack.com. I'll put the link in the show notes and check out our secret podcast. When you become a paid backer, when you upgrade your subscription and you join our community, you get lots of perks for being a community member. For our paid backers, I host a monthly private podcast where I dig into the nitty gritty of business building and parenting and everything in between. Listeners and readers get to submit questions, then I pick one or two each month and we dive deep into it. In addition, for our paid backers, we host our Startup Parent Monthly Book Club. This is where we get to talk about interesting books with other smart and interesting and kind people. And I run book club a little bit differently. You can read the book if you have time, but chances are you don't always have time to read the book. So the way I host book club is that anyone can join whether or not you've read the book because I give you a summary of it up at the beginning and then I frame up four questions from the book that we can talk about and you'll always be in rooms with other people that have read the book so we can share knowledge and wisdom. The purpose of book club is to have rich and interesting and insightful conversations not to judge you on whether or not you had a chance to read a book. So our secret podcast and our private book club those are just two of the perks that we offer for people who become community members and 
that's not all. I love getting to say that phrase, that's not all. There are actually a lot of other perks and I'm gonna let you discover them when you go to our Substack. Last but not least, if you liked this episode, I would be grateful if you would leave us a review. It means a lot to the show and it helps other people find us. So definitely leave a review. I read every single one of them and I'm so grateful when I see your name in my inbox and when I see that people are leaving more reviews. So thank you for doing that. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here and I will see you on the next episode.